actually when talking to postdocs, um, this is sort of the number one fear about preprints in general, this idea that if you put your preprint out there, somebody's going to scoop you and basically publish a paper using the information in your preprint without citing you. Um, which, I mean, when you think about it, is kind of speaks to how ridiculous our culture is that, you know, there's like this literally time-stamped public document that details exactly what you've done, and people are still afraid that that is not sufficient evidence of the priority of your claim. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University. And we are also here with a special guest, Jessica Polka, who is the director of ASAP Bio and a visiting scholar at the Whitehead Institute. Jessica, thanks for joining us on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much, Dan. So, what is the what's the story behind ASAP Bio? Yeah, so great question. So we are a group of researchers who are interested in promoting a culture and the productive use of preprints in life sciences. So uh, preprints are basically just manuscripts that are posted online before the completion of journal organized peer review. Obviously, obviously, we're big supporters ourselves because, um, you know, I haven't done one since last week. Dan hasn't done one for a month or so. Um, and so? everyone who's listening, probably everyone who's listening probably knows what they are and uh, has a, a reasonable sort of intro to it. Um, but no one that we know, at least, is going as far as starting an advocacy organization and uh, treading the boards, uh, knocking heads, and trying to get people more convinced about them. Is it a bio- <laughs> well, is it a biology specific thing? It is biology specific. So essentially. Um, this organization came out of a group called Rescuing Biomedical Research, which is this sort of uh, Bruce Alberts, Shirley Tillman, Kirshner of Armas group. Um, they created a, a committee kind of in the aftermath of their 2014 article about all of the problems in biomedical research and how funding and training and all these things are kind of fundamentally uh, in need of, of fixing. And um, so within that group, Ron Vale, who really is sort of the founder of ASAP Bio, recruited um, a couple other committee members to uh, work with him on trying to solve the problem of the fact that it's taking us so long to get our research out the door uh, that we're not only negatively impacting basically junior researchers' careers, but also um, the entire progress of science, scientific discovery. Uh, so from, from that group, basically, we um, decided to organize a meeting in early 2016 um, to kind of talk about this issue from the perspective of not only junior and senior scientists, but also funders, journal uh, editors, publishers, um, and and really others other stakeholders who have some investment in the way that science is, is being done. Um, so I mean, for me, I think that this is uh, that really this is a, a tangible thing that can be done to change the way that early career researchers experience the whole process of science um, and a tangible way to actually try to improve our publication system. Um, you know, I, that that said, um, I, I think that there's it's such a complicated 
situation. It's such a compl- uh, complicated ecosystem of, of challenges that um, I think beginning with preprints is, is uh, more tenable than, <laughs> than not doing anything else, I guess. For sure. Um, for people who are, are listening who were in the social sciences, um, the, the bio part of... Is it, do I call it ASAP or do I have to spell it out every time? No, I say ASAP all the time, but oh, I have good. no Oh, good. All right. Fair enough. No complaints. It's, it's, much, it's much more Australian to, to turn everything into a contracted word. <laughs> um, so that's much more comfortable. Um, it, it's, it's more of a problem in biology than in other things. So I'll, I'll outline how I understand publication in biology, and then you can tell me how I'm wrong um, because I'm very much not a biologist. But. An awful lot of people who work in the life sciences or the associated biosciences spend years working on the big paper. So rather than like I, people who work in analytical fields are not really familiar with this at all. I can come up with an idea and run through something and get a data set and make a paper and throw it out into the ether in six weeks. But if you're doing a, a big proper biology experiment, it takes a lot of money. It takes years. There's a lot of intercoordination between people. And then to become a special little biologist, you have to send it to the big important journal. And whether or not you get the paper and whether or not it makes a difference itself is a much more a much more substantial thing within the life sciences in general. So it's not a matter of I mean, I did I had six papers in my PhD, but for someone in biology it's kind of unthinkable. If you had an awesome PhD, you'd get one great paper in the big journal that would probably have minimum two years worth of sequential experiments looking at one thing. So the need for preprints is as a as a communicative mechanism to is, is it feels like there's a lot more urgency in biology than in other I stuff. Think, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean um, yes that's not to to begin to say that that all research does not deserve to be communicated in like a timely fashion. Um, of course. But in the life sciences, um, for example, in my graduate program, um, and Ronville actually published an analysis of how long it takes for people at UCSF in grad school to come out with their first paper. Um, and uh, it's, I, I think the median is something around five years wow. uh, to come out with their first first author paper. <laughs> so, yeah, it takes a long time. Um, yeah, it, it's, right. I, yeah, it's exacerbated by the fact that I think that we're trying to like hold the data to come up with the most compelling story possible. Um, yep. You're chasing and, down uh, alternative explanations and trying to shore it up. And that's where you end up with a seven, eight experiment series trying to lop off all the potential explanations for what could be happening, using new techniques, rolling in other people. It becomes a money and a time and an intercoordination problem. And in the meantime, all of this cool stuff that you've done is sitting there on on the table, ready to go without any sort of, uh, you know. And that that's that's why if, if people are, people in the social sciences have heard of being scooped, but they don't really know what it is. But biologists worry about that a lot more because you're working on long complex problems and you don't know what will happen in. Uh, a, a month or two while your paper that's three years of work is under review you might not be the person to find out the special thing there's still that value on the precedence of the result absolutely um i i think that there's this fear of scooping is uh, you know they're like campfire stories that get passed around in grad <laughs> school like 
oh, I, went to, I presented this poster at a meeting, and then this other group uh, came out with something similar. They published in a journal that was faster, or you know, I you know submitted my paper for review, and then it got trashed by a reviewer, and I think that reviewer is really my competitor, et cetera, et cetera. So this problem of scooping is everywhere um, in the life sciences already. Um, and it, it, I think actually when talking to postdocs, um, this is sort of the number one fear about preprints in general, this idea that if you put your preprint out there, somebody's going to scoop you and basically publish a paper using the information in your preprint without citing you, um, which, I mean, when you think about it, is kind of speaks to how ridiculous our culture is, that, you know, there's like this literally time-stamped public document that hmm. details exactly what you've done, and people are still yeah. afraid that that is not sufficient evidence of the priority I have of had your that, claim. I have had that conversation with biologists. They say, well, why don't you, you've got this much time, why don't you pre-print it? And they'll just tell me sort of cold-faced, like Clint Eastwood at the end of The Good, Bad, and The Ugly, oh, that wouldn't count. <laughs> if I did that, you know, it wouldn't because it isn't it isn't the special little thing and the moment it's not the special little thing, it's the only thing that matters. So like if you stick it in the public domain, especially with supporting documentation stuff, someone else might riff off it. I mean, you, you really can't take the thing wholesale and publish it under your own name, except in cases of the most egregious fuckery, which does happen occasionally but not very often, right? But someone else might be able to riff off it and get it published especially if you're looking at some other aspect of it in the meantime they may have one particular observation where they can they can do something short so i mean it has it the has... idea that it doesn't count is a huge problem i'm sorry what is a huge problem sorry the idea the idea that the preprint itself doesn't count that that oh, doesn't yeah. that doesn't matter is the thing the moment that's delegitimized so it's like we found the stuff out and i wrote my name on it but it's not in the special place um, that is a, you, you called it a ridiculous culture. I like that. Well, I would I mean, listen to a band called Ridiculous <laughs> Culture. So, so having this, this fear of being scooped is obviously a big concern, and I get exactly the same um, uh, comment when I actually mention uh, preprints to my colleagues. But what other concerns do you come up uh, when you when you're sort of speaking about preprints? What are, what are some other common concerns that you do actually hear? So, um, obviously, I think scooping for people early in their career is a big one, but the second concern um, is kind of logistical, which is what if journals won't like it? What if, um, you know, what if I'm going to get rejected from a particular journal um, because of uh, the fact that I've pre-printed? Um, I, I think that now, um, over the last couple of years especially, many journals in the life sciences have removed their um, at least their publicly stated bias against preprints, and and really the <laughs> that was carefully worded. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think I think that there's there's many journals are very proud to be explicitly pro preprint because I think there's this sense that it is um, a, a kind of a, a new frontier. It's a way to promote openness in science. Um, there's a list on Wikipedia academic journals by preprint policy and also database Sherpa Romeo where you can go look up uh, journal policies and yep. they're surprising show notes sorry uh, everything you mentioned like that goes in the show notes that's we will, we'll so where people it. will have links to those oh wonderful okay yeah so essentially those are, are uh, 
you know, great resources. And um, I, I think what's really evident is that, for example, Cell, um, which was uh, kind of a longstanding, um, uh, slightly more resistant to preprints than, than other journals, um, has changed their policy uh, basically to say that they are, you know, happy to have people preprint. And in fact, they've even started a sort of uh, preprint adjacent experiment called Cell Press Sneak Peek. Um, so I think that there's a, been a huge kind of sea change in the way the journals are approaching preprints. Um, but I think what's... Um, yeah. Dan had Dan had the exact opposite experience with something recently. I mean, there's, there's, two, there's two weird sort of not particularly well converging attitudes. And one of them is if you publish a preprint and people give a shit and it does really well, maybe I want it in the journal. Um, so it's as you can, you can shop the damn thing out. And then if you had a Dan had an experience when an editor came to him and said, regardless of the way you look and your alleged personal hygiene, I like your paper. Um, we will consider this for publication because it seems to be interesting to people. But there is also the, I saw this the other day. I think it was a JAMA group journal. It said something like, if you fuck with our ability to present this in a novel fashion, like the more attention it gets, that will account negatively towards your assessment of the paper because then we don't get to go splashing that, it around ourselves. Uh, That's obviously a, a, a reading of it, but it was more sort of, if people are paying attention to that before we've got our sticky fingers on it, then that is going to count negatively towards our ability to market our own shit. So in that sense, it's essentially a marketing decision. Well, uh, that, that just makes complete... Uh, that, that's complete nonsense. I, I think that what you were, you were referring to was actually... Um, I saw something, saw something very similar from a spokesperson from Science and uh, who was saying that the, the editors may also take into account comprehensive media coverage. Now, for me, that just makes no sense whatsoever because obviously if there's media coverage, then your paper is probably saying something quite important. So it should actually be a marker of... We should be taking this paper seriously. It's just, it's just crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think that that um, there's uh, kind of two separate issues here. Um, one issue is the whole issue about media embargoes for scientific journals mm -hmm. altogether. Yeah. And I think proponents of media embargoes say that this helps attention be focused on research when it's new, when it's fresh, at a good time, and it's like life cycle, when it's been peer-reviewed, etc., etc. Um, I mean, it, it, the media embargo question comes up not just with preprints, but also with um, basically any kind of presentation at a, a meeting or a conference. Um, you know, there's some scientific societies promote their abstracts to the press, basically, um, and that's frequently ahead of journal publication. So there's, I think there's, there's instances where the journal's desire for the media embargo um, is disrupted by various other means. Um, I mean, I think the second question, though, is about what kind of attention are you receiving? Is it attention within the scientific community or is it attention to the popular press? And that second issue of attention to the popular press um, is something that is kind of another fear that people express, right? This idea that we're basically just posting kind of whatever content we want on preprint servers, 
and now journalists are going to pick it up and the public is going to be even more confused about what science you know what what science is <laughs> and we're going to pe- you know keep saying that eggs are good for you or bad for you like you know five times a year instead of three and it's just going to make that whole situation worse so but it, it seems right. like a lot of people are concerned about these very very sort of niche scenarios um I saw I was speaking to one person about preprints and I'm like, um, yeah, if you thought about preprinting your paper and they're like, but Dan, have you heard that the New England Journal of Medicine doesn't accept preprints? And I'm like, mate, if, 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 if your paper is good enough for that... <laughs> then, 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 but I think yeah. everyone thinks their paper yeah, exactly, is good enough for that. Exactly. I think that's part of the problem, right? Because people... I think that there's this whole... The impact factor slide, right? Where you submit to one journal... <laughs> It gets rejected, and then you submit to another journal, and then it gets rejected, and you submit to another one. So I think that's kind of the whole like, serial submission, the fact that papers are undergoing multiple rounds of peer review, uh, you know, maybe even to the same reviewers at different journals. It's part of the whole, like, waste and, and you know, excess yeah. cycle. Well, I, I, the, 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 the point about losing narrative control, I think that's more that feels to me like we have a media department for doing that so why are you trying to get ahead of us and the, the the idea that you can stop people in the popular press and the world at large from misrepresenting something because it's just something that you said I, I would i would say two things one you're going to lose narrative control anyway everything even the most careful stuff a lot of the time is already hacked to bits by the time it's in your local university press release and then it's coming out wrong and it won't stop the Daily Mail for it doesn't matter how many peer reviewers you throw at it. You're going to get the eggs a good headline regardless of where in the research cycle it comes out anyway. Even if it's not about eggs. These people in dietary cholesterol, I've got a good two minutes yelling <laughs> about that, but we're going we're gonna to push that to one side right now. Um, the, the, other, the other point is... Um, the, the, it's the idea that it's just stuff that you stick out in in the world. Yeah, um, that would mean that peer review is this tremendous marker quality that means that everything is everything. Don't don't worry, it's been through peer review. There's plenty of those. It's not just the the obvious experiences of people who've been pushed around by the process but there's plenty of studies on that it's all the, there's so many wonderful quotes from former editors of the British Journal of Medicine about what it, what it, how shit the process can go sometimes so relying on it as the ultimate marker quality but it hasn't yeah maybe maybe it hasn't maybe that's not important and maybe you can't continue to exercise control after it's published regardless what do you, what do you think is actually going to happen the moment it goes through the proper journal processes that everyone who's got 20 minutes to do 800 words on it is going to get the details right? They're fucking not. Not even good science journalists get everything right all the time when it's pushed out like that. A lot of it is... I mean, I had to yell at someone in a press office the other day who did a press release without a reference to the paper or where it was published or a DOI. They just went... I had to find the thing by some serious Google foo, like going into the Springer database and, and, and... do you, do you do you realize that you've you've essentially done you've done a press release on something that according to the article doesn't exist yet? It's like oh yeah, sorry, it was we were confused with the embargo. We're like oh great, the system works, well done. Oh, ten points and a blue ribbon for you, you dickhead. Uh, I didn't say that. I didn't say that last bit, but I was thinking yeah, it oh, real yeah, well. Loud. Well, I know I, I understand. I mean, I yeah, I, I completely agree with you. The system in general, um, there's a lot of fears about how preprints are going to disrupt 
the system that we have working now without, I think, a, like equivalent critical concern as to whether the system we have now is actually working optimally. Um, and I think peer review is, you know, as you mentioned, is this black box that stuff come, you know, comes out of, and then we sort of have this tendency to assume that because it's been peer reviewed, now we can kind of yeah, cite it. Uh, there's this. I mean, another kind of interesting question is whether people feel comfortable citing preprints or not, um, and that has all kinds of like dark um, corners to it as well. But I mean, I, I, the whole question that of what peer review does and does not mean, I think, is something that we need to be thinking about more um, in the future. So, on that note, ASAP Bio is uh, co-organizing a meeting with. Uh, Welcome Trust and HHMI in February um, on kind of transparency and peer review in the life sciences because, hmm. yeah, I mean, preprints, we, obviously we love preprints, uh, but preprints are not the, the end of the whole publication story. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, there's more information. I can send you uh, the link on that. But um, I, I, I just uh, want to highlight one last concern about preprints that I think it, I'd also like to hear what you know, you guys think about this too. But one concern that I hear frequently is that preprints are just going to increase the volume of information that is out there, and this is just <laughs> too much. There's too much information, and we can't we can't understand <laughs> all of it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I have uh, some thoughts. Yeah, I have some I'm feelings about pretty this. sure Dan and I have congruent opinions on that one look more more information the better um i think look look how many journals are out there um i'm gonna say one grillion one grillion there are there are so many journals out there and that that in a sense isn't uh you know probably isn't improving the 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 standard of science that we 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 have that comes back to the whole issue whether peer review is actually a good marker of, of good quality science so in that sense, um, let's just put as much information out there as possible. Um, I don't see it as an issue. Um, people seem to have a lot of concern about what, what the public would think. I, I would be so happy if the public would re- actually read my preprints. They probably don't, but they have this concern <laughs> that people... What if the public read preprints? Please, please read them. Um, and, then, and then, you know, that, that actually kind of opens the door and hopefully they can email and, and, and go from there. But it all comes back to this kind of these, these edge case scenarios. Um, and it kind of seems like people are just grasping at straws a bit when it comes yeah, to there's a concerns. lot of what ifism, isn't yeah. there? Under this particular scenario, it could be amazing. It could be really important. I could potentially hurt something. Yeah, but you know, you, this is a forest for the trees situation. Um, I have a, I have a strong opinion on that as well. Who knew I'd have a strong opinion <laughs> about that? Um, the The problem is the problem is really not the image. There's already we're already flooded with shit. Uh, Dan and I have both talked on a lot of previous podcasts about the way we curate shit that we need to read in the first place, and we have a variety of. Uh, scholar alerts. I have scholar alerts, PubMed alerts, and my own RSS feeds for giving me new reading about stuff. And I can assess all of that. Dan's probably got more complicated stuff uh, set up as well. I've also got the, the other the he- is- Heather's alert. Where you send me? Have, have you have you seen this paper? Ah, uh, yeah, good- yeah. This is a good a good way to get sworn at when you send it too yeah. early in the morning. <laughs> um, it's 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 not the it's not the problem. We we're, we're already in. We're already very much in the digital age. 
when it comes to the the backbone of publication that allows someone to get a venue to send shit. There's already way too much. The idea that you're going to go from way too much to even more, well, what, what do you need to address on the basis of that? We live in the big data age. You need to curate the information properly. You need to be able to know where the right shit is actually coming up. Things need to be tagged and cross-linked the right way. It doesn't matter. Look, there could be... If there was 10 times the amount of anthropology papers published tomorrow as there were today, none of us would pay the slightest bit of attention. But it could mean a great deal to the people who want to read the three or four more good... No, I'm not being rude about anthropology. I just chose that out of many of the fields that are peripherally useful. No, no, I'm doing it again. No, I'm not. I've just... That's that's a... It's an example chosen at random. The, the the idea that you can somehow pollute everything when we don't have the information that we already have curated properly, and it's not getting sent to the people who need to know about it in the first place. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of empty, you know. It's the, well, the other thing as well. Look, so many of these relationships have been what I will read and understand are trust based. There's this lab and that lab and those people and she's got a great work group and I like her and I met her grad students and I trust everything they do and they're super careful so every time they publish something I'll read it. That's where an awful lot of people are getting their niche information about what they do. It's entirely reputation based and it's handled casually. So no one's going out into the literature and going, oh, I need to search for everything in the past two years on this one specific thing. Oh, there's so much. Is there's just a, a, if there's a lot of stuff that you can't trust or you're not interested in, the way most people handle that is by knowing the genesis of where it's from. Would you prefer a preprint from a lab you trusted or a fully furnished series of papers from a bunch of who don't know their ass from their elbow? <laughs> but the problem is not everyone can know everyone. At all the other labs, right? I think that the journal is basically a prox, effective proxy for trust, right? And that is clearly something that we need in, in you know, one, we need some, some way of curating information and of, of basically transferring this trust from one group to another. Yeah. Well, how do we, how do, we so. do that? What do you think about... Um, I've seen more and more there's a lot more uh, specialty preprint servers popping up. What do you think about that versus... Yeah. So you have these specialty servers versus these kind of broader servers. Do, do you have any thoughts on, on whether that's the way to go or what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I think one good case uh, study in this area is Paleo Archive, which launched on Center for Open Science earlier this year. Shout out to John um, Tennant, who smells a bit, but good effort. Yes, yes. Um, there was, uh, I think, a... <laughs> so there's, there are paleos, I think there's a paleo section on BioArchive um, and, and other preprint servers, but the, those sections were relatively underused. I think that having a community of people who are dedicated um, to advancing the standards within their own field uh, is incredibly important. So I know that one thing that John has thought a lot about is uh, whether species names are going to be included in the preprint version or whether they are, in in the case where taxonomy is important, whether those are going to be um, left blank for the final publication. And So these are things that as like a biochemist, cell biologist, synthetic biologist, I never would have thought of. So I think having people who actually understand the needs of the field um, is incredibly important. Um, You know, I mean, what Center for Open Science is doing is basically creating a platform that allows any 
group uh, to kind of launch their own preprint server. Um, and they're also providing some, you know, uh, some kind of community uh, where those leads can kind of talk to one another. So, I mean, I see that as a really excellent solution. Um, I think also that, you know, there's so much variation that's possible with preprints. For example, um, while I, one thing that we as ASAP Bio are very interested in, in kind of instigating conversations around is best practices. Um, you know, there's certainly some things that are uh, probably common needs for all preprint servers, like persistence, uh, access, uh, access for machines as well as humans, etc. Yeah. But uh, you know, beyond that, I think there's a lot of questions around formatting, um, around uh, policies that are that deserve to be experimented with. So I'm really enthusiastic about um, seeing new groups trying new things. Uh, as long as they can interoperate with one another on some reasonable level. What sure. is your take on formatting for preprints? Oh God! So, uh, I'm it, it, my take is basically jealousy. Like in in the life sciences, we have basically PDFs uh, only, which are like they're they're so sad and useless in the sense <laughs> that you know if you're trying even for me even for me I'm I'm trying to read a preprint on my mobile phone. I'm moving the, the PDF back yeah, and forth trying to read ones. it. It's just yeah. a mess. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's horrible. Whereas on Archive, for example, where um, you know you have authors submitting their original um, manuscript file, uh, you know there's you can read it in a format that is much more flexible, that's much more machine readable, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So yep. um, I, yeah, I, I I feel like having um, you know there's a, I think there's some some questions there about typesetting and who should be doing typesetting should it be the journals should it you know or whatever but i i'm really excited for more preprint servers to provide content in uh more structured formats or let's just say non-pdf yeah formats. the um, moment you let a typesetter loose on a pdf holy shit you we had a, we had michelle nelton on a few episodes back and one of the things you've obviously heard of uh stat check I've heard a stat check. I've heard a stat check. Check this out. Ta-da! Hey! <laughs> I have the sticker on my phone case. Um, I mean, why wouldn't you? That's what people can know in a very small way that I tend to put stickers either on people in the street or on sort of very small things. Um, one of the things that drove a nuts is the fact that when someone typesets a PDF and they are trying to, they're sending spiders out to suck the information and get it in, and they're trying to match up the test statistics with the p-values or whatever else. Typesetters make the individual numbers look better by doing a graphic of an equal sign rather than putting in an actual equal sign. And then when you're going to say it needs to be machine-readable, yeah, they don't give a shit. They're just trying to make the equal sign look happy. So that, that threw them for a loop for ages, simply because all they've done is managed to sod the equal signs up. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah it that's, goes deep. That's like... Exactly. I mean, these are definitely made for... You know, especially if you're leaving it to individual authors, um, you know, this is not something that I think that most researchers necessarily are like, is that really at the forefront of their mind? Like, is someone going to be able to machine, you know, like text and data mine this PDF that I've I've created? Um, it's, yeah, it's challenging. I mean, the other way to interpret formatting is like, is this, does this look and smell like a research article? Mm. 
um, which is kind of currently in our definition of, or in sort of the understood uh, uh, term of, of preprint, is this idea that it's a manuscript that could be submitted to a journal, right? Um, whereas I think there's a lot of other content, you know, very short reports, a thesis, um, you know, a single figure that is really valuable. Um, and, you know, is that a preprint or not? I think there's, you know, a, some vigorous debate that could be uh, had around those issues. And do we want, do people want those types of, con that type of material mixed in with the preprints? So, for example, hmm. um, the AGU is launching a preprint service so in geosciences. And they are also going to be hosting posters from their meetings, which is I think it's great. I mean, the fact that, you know, we basically give posters and then, you know, throw them away at the end of a meeting. Well, never. You to be can make again. them it's into a dress. Ridiculous. I saw that. I look terrible in a dress, but uh, I did see a few people who'd done that on Twitter. I, ha I have seen that people making into uh, suit jackets, into cushions, oh. completely repurposing their uh, their. But I think you that, didn't that's know what I just said there for a second. That was a marvelous double take. Yeah, was it's it? a huge. It's I... a huge piece of cloth. You just you turn it into a fashionable garment, and then you got science <laughs> pants. Ta-da! Science there pants. There you go. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a proponent of, of science pants, um, but the problem with science pants can, is that they're that... very difficult to read. You know, in the yeah, you have to like, what, what's, what's that figure? Yeah, <laughs> you have to be very Can, can we title this episode, Scraping the Science Pants? Science Pants, done. <laughs> well. But on, uh, awesome. on, on formatting, I actually find that um, a few people that I speak to are hesitant for preprints because they're like, well, I, I can't figure out LaTeX, and there seems to be this sort of... Some people seem to have this vibe that a preprint of a basically a PDF version of a Word document isn't taken as seriously as a more properly um, um, formatted preprint. And my, my, my take on that is, well, having a, a poorly formatted PDF is, is far better than having nothing out there at all. Um, but if you oh, yeah. can actually do the, uh, the LaTeX format, uh, formatting, then all, all the better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. It definitely looks better. Um... But I guess the fact that that at least in on BioArchive, everyone is doing the double spaced yeah. PDF that looks horrible. So um, our standards are are pretty low I think, <laughs> in that particular area. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break, and uh, we will be back soon talking more about preprints. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Uh, today we are talking with Jessica Polka, who is the director of ASAP Bio. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at, at Jessica Polka, uh, one word. Uh, and you can also find ASAP Bio on Twitter. That's ASAP, ASAP Bio underscore. Uh, thanks to everyone who had who listened to our 50th uh, podcast episode celebration, which was a live 
episode, uh, one and a half hours of me and James is talking. Um, we we're frankly surprised that so many people Just actually talking. He sells himself down the river for a mess of pottage as usual. Just talking. <laughs> we were declaiming great truths. You socialist sellout. We, we it was were. awesome. And it was on video. So if you want, you can listen to the podcast episode, um, just the, the plain audio, or you can watch the video of, of us. But it was we had, we had a lot of fun. Uh, we had a lot of people actually um, contacting us during the episode. So we were able to make our corrections uh, almost instantaneously. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so thank you. Uh, thank you for the support there um, for and joining us in our celebration of um of 50 episodes but uh right now we are in episode 51 and uh and we are talking uh we are talking preprints so uh, jessica i just wanted to uh to ask you that uh you know i guess most of our listeners do understand the benefits of preprints but quite often their um their lab heads are hesitant as soon as they hear the, the mention of preprints what do you find to be the, the best strategies for bringing this up to lab heads and pis Wow. I mean, I think this is a, a really tricky issue. It's one that um, I have been chatting with a group of people who uh, kind of work with ASAP Bio to kind of promote preprints in their home institutions. We had a, a, a chat about this on, on Twitter recently. I think there's a, um, a, there's a lot of different strategies depending on what the resistance uh, of the PI is. I mean, I think there is some brand of resistance, which is essentially, this is not the way things are done, uh, you know, this is essentially going to either uh, cause us to be uh, disadvantaged in some way in our journal submission, someone's going to scoop us, it's really, it's all the same flavors of concerns that people bring up uh, more broadly, and I think it really kind of comes down to students and postdocs being armed with good responses to those concerns. Of course, the other thing that I think can be very helpful is um, when peers, uh, our own peers, the the peers of PIs, are posting preprints, if those can be brought to their attention, um, they're kind of integrated a little more into the kind of sphere of awareness um, in the sense that I think there's still probably a lot of researchers in general who are just unfamiliar with preprints. They either haven't heard of them or they're just, um, it's not really like a, a, a household word um, in, in, the, in the life sciences at all. And so um, kind of being able to draw attention to preprints by sharing them, even the ones that are obviously not coming from your own lab, but that are coming from others in the field, um, I, I think can be can be really helpful. Um, One thing that we try to do to help um, is to provide kind of some resources of basically links to people who've had great experiences with preprints. Um, You know, I I think that the overwhelmingly, um, we'd done, before our first meeting in 2016, ASAP Bio, we ran a a small survey uh, on our website and asked people sort of, what experiences did you have with preprints? And overwhelmingly, almost everyone has an incredibly positive experience. I think that there's uh, the benefits definitely outweigh the risks, uh, but I think it's it's often hard to understand that if you don't know anyone personally who has preprinted. So, we have a section on our website for preprint stories, um, and uh, I'll, I can provide the URL. And, and basically, the the goal is to kind of share um, preprint experiences uh, from one researcher to another. Um, 
And actually, Dan, you have had a really interesting and productive experience with preprints, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, really, really cool story. Um, so uh, earlier this year, I posted a preprint um, uh, looking at uh, basically a review of statistical techniques, and um, that that went out. Um, and um, a lot of people told me I was wrong <laughs> with the preprint, so I got a lot of feedback, a lot of constructive feedback. Um, and funnily enough, uh, one of our guests, uh, Daniel <laughs> Larkin... You got a good uh, kicking. <laughs> act, yeah, yes, on, on the podcast as well. He actually uh, came on the show uh, about a week after the preprint came out, and he was asking me questions about the preprint on the show. But he also... Yeah, which is which, which which was great, and he also sent me some um, some fantastic comments afterwards. Um, but as a result of that, um, uh, the, the paper really really improved. And um, as it happened, one of my co-author actually um, wasn't able to continue working on the paper because uh, he's uh, took took a fantastic job uh, in, in industry, and so he's like, "Sorry, Dan, uh, I can't work on the paper," and I'm like, "That's fine." Um, but then I actually got in contact with one of the people that um, gave me some feedback who not only was uh, was an expert in the area of statistics I was talking about, but also does a lot of research within my subfield of oxytocin research. And I thought, this guy, this guy's going to be perfect. So I spoke to him, uh, Don, Donald Williams, actually, I think he, I think he listens to the show. Um, and I reached out to him going, hey, um, you know, you had a lot of great things to say about the paper. Um, and my co-author actually can't continue with the paper do you want to jump on? And he wrote back almost straight away going, yep, let's do it. And so with uh, with his help, not only with the initial feedback he provided online, um, but also with some further discussion, uh, we were able to, to really improve the paper. Um, and then when we submitted to the journal, I thought, I'm going to try something a bit different. I'm actually going to put in the letter to the editor going, hey, we've already got a lot of interest in the paper. And then I actually said, here's a link to the preprint. Um, we've already had um, uh, close to a thousand downloads already, so there is already significant interest in the literature and in the readers of your journal for this paper. So I was thinking this is either going to go, re- hopefully this will go really well. And uh, I'm mean, so the editor actually did end up sending the paper out. I'm not sure how much um, the the preprint actually would have helped with that, but it certainly didn't actually harm our chances there and it's it's under review it's in a really good journal for my field so uh yeah so 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 fingers crossed it uh it all goes well but that's um in in overall i've gotten a few um uh you know i've I've just had positive experiences with with preprints including that story um potential collaborations which have popped up from other preprints as well people have contacted me um going hey like your stuff is very similar to what the stuff that i'm doing and a lot of people would see that as a threat, but they're kind of like, hey, let's actually work together for um, for what you're doing and for what I'm doing. And that's working really well because that that particular paper for, that, that I got those comments on has been under review for oh, for about two months now. And if I didn't pre-print it, no one would have seen it until it actually would have eventually came out. But the fact that I pre-printed it, um, I was able to actually get that um, information out there that, this, hey, this is, a, this is a slightly new thing that I'm working on and this is what we found and it's able to get people's interest. So... I've only got positive stories personally for preprints, and I know you—you you do as well, James. Uh, particularly with your uh, with your grim paper, and uh, I'm sure there's other stuff as well. Hey, well, my central problem is that I'm totally congenitally ill-suited to being a scientist. So once I've stopped working on something, the idea of it going away and coming back in three months with a bunch of gibberish written all over it about how the margins are the wrong height and I didn't use the Oxford comma is 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 torture. Um, 
I like the fact that it can immediately be read and then I can go through the, the process of forgetting about it entirely. I, I feel like something very, I feel like something very, the, the, the center of the publication process has been committed at the point in time that it's sent somewhere else. And whether or not other people approve, I mean, you, you can get some interesting remarks and it's nice to have it improved, but if you look right at the center of it and there's something about it that you feel very happy with and you're certain that it won't change too much, there's a, a great ability to go, well, that's the end of that. I'll fix it up as like a process job in whenever the hell these people get back to me. And it al it allows you to get on with your life. It also allows you to prove that you've actually been doing something in the meantime. Um, I have my own strategy now for you think, how, your first question there was, how do you convince people to use these things? And something that changed recently that I think is huge that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that the NIH said, if you are writing a preprint into your grant application, we will take that under consideration. Now, vast majority of grant applications are for a weird combination between work you're going to do and work you've already done. And that depending on whether or not it's a pilot scheme or it's a big setup, uh, RO1 kind of deal, depends on how much actually has to be completed. So I'm going to write a grant in a couple of months. And in that grant, something that I'm planning on pre-printing in about a month will be in the public domain. And the the structure, because the, there's no chance it's going to be, it's done, essentially. I know how the analysis is going to work. It's going to be done. It's going to be out there. And the ability to refer to it as something that is prospective and already in play, under consideration elsewhere, made public, is better than, no, totally, I promise I've already solved that problem. <laughs> Um, you could, you, you're just going to have to believe me. It's it's a better argument to say that shit's big. So if you're trying to convince someone who's the, there's no better time to do that than if you if you're applying for the money to do something else. You say we can prove what we've done now, and we are explicitly allowed to include that in a request for more money, which is everything apparently. And that's just the NIH. Solid There's argument. a whole slew of funders that have that same position. Yeah, sure. Um, and we, yeah, he sent you a, a list as well. So it's that's incredibly powerful. I mean, the full fact that you can basically list your preprint um, as evidence of, of productivity rather than waiting for an editor to decide uh, to accept it or not. It doesn't change the fact that you've done the science, right? So mm. that, I think, is uh, just so much more transparent and yeah, Sensitive. yeah. If, look, as if they're reviewing it, if it's something, especially if it's a, a, a specialist application for most of the vast majority of stuff that I've ever done, like that's not for the NIH. It's for people who've got very specific calls for very specific things. The idea that if it's on the fence, if they think, oh, maybe they're, they're trying to check it properly, they can go and look at it. You can immediately establish a research record, and you don't have to make promises that your sample panel in the grant, which is always the thing, you know, I go, oh, this, here's two little graphs of how we think it'll work. You can go and look at the whole goddamn thing of the stuff that's actually in process and make your decision on that basis. So if, you, if you're going to review a grant properly, it probably makes it easier if you're trying to do it right. So it does. It yeah, fits absolutely. very well into that process when you have a, because you know you get some call for call for applications about once every six weeks or something that you could potentially apply for. How the fuck are you supposed to keep up with that if you've got a, a, a two, three, five year cycle to getting something in print? 
It's just going to be a series of stacked promises. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. I mean, I, I think if um, if grant applications can, and preprints can be an incentive, I mean, clearly I'm sure that they are an incentive now to push out work um, that would otherwise be kind of sitting um, hidden, um, then, you know, I think that's a good thing in general. Um, you know, making work available faster is, is always better. Um, For sure. But you mentioned something interesting, James, which is that you sort of are like, oh, well, I feel like this is right. I'm just going to push it out. I think a lot of researchers um, kind of unfortunately lack your confidence and are sort of afraid that if if anyone reads something that was not finalized, um, that you know, this paranoia that they've included some, some kind of error, that will be captured in the peer review process um, and that, that in other words leading work letting work that is unfinished out into the public will somehow damage their reputation um, in, in some way hmm. I, mean, I, I understand that but that is I mean the only the only thing that I can think of to counter that is the fact that um, I was at a talk recently where Kirsty Whitaker said that you know we need to replace our culture um, with one that acknowledges that we are humans and uh, you know we make these small mistakes and uh, everyone does it so everyone has this kind of um, you know dirty laundry yeah it's, well that's fair enough I mean I, I spend an enormous amount of time in the, the in various meta scientific applications going through formal published allegedly excellent peer-reviewed papers that are just <laughs> fuck backwards ugly where the, all the all sorts of things have gone wrong and they've been kicked up and down a corridor for a fortnight poured into a like a concrete mixer and then slopped into a journal at a random angle i mean what, what what's this what's Yikes. this process supposed to protect you from if that's the kind of stuff that you can pull out of the literature yeah maybe maybe going maybe going through your first 20 or 40 papers that are just riven with errors is like a minefield of bullshit. Maybe if you do that for a while, you have a little bit more confidence that your work doesn't have to be perfect. You get a different perspective on just how much garbage there is. Well, you know, two, two maybe I'm a horrible human being. That's also possible, and that has been floated on this podcast a few times. <laughs> it has been. But uh, two, two things on that. Um, firstly, I would much rather people find errors in my preprints than errors in my published work. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. Times 100. Um, second thing, um, many preprint servers, uh, I'm thinking of um, Open Science Framework, for instance, allows you to actually update your preprint. Um, for another preprint that I submitted recently, I noticed a typo in my table, and I'm like, okay, easy. I actually went in and just did a, a new version. Um, and the good thing is the, the older versions are, are, are archived, so people can go back and actually see what you've changed. But mm. at least people, when they log on, they go to the most recent thing. Any errors, any typos, update your preprint. Yeah, I have to do that with the last one because I forgot to put the abstract on. I mean, I know that's probably <laughs> quite central. You're supposed to put it at the front and center, but the abstract's very boring. Just, you know, if you can, everything I wanted to say is in the title. Like, get, if you're interested, get into it. <laughs> so, uh, that's... Oh, no, I do, do really do need to go back and do that. And uh, thank you to Alex Holcomb. Captain, I never miss a detail for pointing that out. I'm mailing you a dead cat, but thank you anyway. Um, yeah, you get you get version control over that shit. That's uh, that's cool. I like that. That's true. Mm. Yeah, works out very very well. 
Uh, well, before uh, before we finish up for the uh, episode today, Jessica, we always like asking our guests some quick uh, quick fire questions, just about their more specifically around their careers. So, what we wanted to ask you was, uh, what's one thing that you've changed your mind about in the last few years? Oh, wow! Yeah, this one's That's always a really good. interesting. <laughs> This was Dan's idea originally. Full credit to Dan. He came up with this question and he asked it the first time and I thought, oh, that's a good one. That's a ripper. And everyone does that reaction. You can't see Jessica right now, but she has a look of mild consternation. What have you changed your mind about? Yeah, wow. I mean, I okay, I guess I, I mean, on the most like personal level, I think that I used to think that I could most productively do good in the world by doing science um but i think that um i now feel that there are so many fundamental uh things that could be improved uh challenges um that um it is uh that i think we need more focus and attention on kind of fixing the process of science and the you know uh, on a meta level um uh wow um I think the, the questions about the strategy for doing that is something that I <laughs> I feel like I, I, I it's not fair to say that my mind has changed, but it's an area where um, you know I, I feel that I'm kind of in ongoing um, debate or, or internal um, confusion about like how what is the appropriate strategy for changing this incredibly complicated uh, system that is doing many good things in fairness and all fairness um, yeah, cool. how to prevent on a unintended consequences uh yeah nice okay and uh what's one book or paper that you would recommend that everyone should read oh this is so nerdy this is so nerdy but i'm gonna oh uh, you're not gonna be nerdier um, than people we've had on before mate i, don't I think, think i you think you're the right podcast that. <laughs> well okay so um jennifer lynn jeff belder cameron nalen have this excellent paper called uh, principles of scholarly infrastructure, which um, I think is just such a useful framework for thinking about um, how we want the institutions that are kind of stewards of knowledge to function. Um, I think that there's a lot of discussion around for-profit versus non-profit, um, commercial, non-commercial, without a lot of sort of critical enough critical thought about what it actually means and why those things are important or what aspects of those things are important um so i I think that paper is just incredibly useful in in laying out the um importance of sustainability and community control and thinking about those kind of structures nice cool i'm gonna have to check nice it's it's, it's uh, always uh, nice when the answer to that question something i've never heard of before and previous answers have included entire textbooks on statistics and um, you know papers of you know why the the oh no don't even yeah I can't (laughs) I can't because I never I I never read them so this is uh, this sounds at least a lot more approachable we'll put that in the show notes too Lynn et al principles of scholarly infrastructure (laughs) what's not funny that's well, serious thanks business. For, 
thanks for joining us today, Jessica. Um, and um, yeah, listeners, if you're interested in learning more about ASAP Bio, make sure you uh, you check out their website um, where you can find a, a lot more resources when it comes to uh, promoting preprints. But uh, thanks for listening to the show today. Remember that you can uh, follow us on Twitter. We are uh, at Hertz Podcast. Uh, you can also follow Jessica, who is Jessica Polka, one word. Uh, and uh, you can uh, find us on Facebook. Just search Everything Hurts. And you can also email us. Uh, we have a, lot, a few people that uh, email us with questions and suggestions and feedback at everythinghurtspodcast at gmail.com. But, and you can uh, find Dan if you hide in his garden and wait for him to walk <laughs> up the path. Give, give, give it a mow while you're there because the uh, grass is, grass is getting, getting a bit long these days thanks to yep. the... Uh, so if Dan yeah. has any stalkers, uh, if, you could, if you could help him out and mow his lawn before you commit horrible homicide-based crimes <laughs> on him, that would be fantastic. It's very important to keep a lawn uh, at a regular level because it completely gets away from you. It does. Sorry, Dan, you were saying? (laughs) Yes, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back again soon for episode 52. Bye for now. Toodles. Bye.